And the fact that you even listen to us is even more than we, we can even bear. And the fact that you would extend to us the privilege of entering into your presence and singing our praises to you, however weak they may be to you, accept them as our best today, I pray. I thank you for all the truth that we have just sung, and the truths that touch us deep within our beings and that remind us that it is your reality and your kingdom that matters. And I ask that today, God, as we study your teachings, I ask for those who don't believe in you and don't walk with Jesus, that you would, in a supernatural way, reach down and grab a hold of them, that they would walk out of here different than how they walked in. Make us aware of the reality that, um, may they be aware of the reality that, may, that they have never really known about you. And for the rest of us who are committed to following Christ, we ask that we would deal honestly to what's in our hearts this morning, that your spirit would clean us out of all the junk that we've accumulated this week, and that we would walk in wholeness and health in you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the disciples said, Amen. Well, today we conclude our series, and that's why I asked for the song Fix You to be played of uh, Help My Family Needs Healing, and yet it's going to be the spiritual dimension today. But before we go any further, I need to tell you that next week is what we call our Vision Sunday. And next week, you're going to hear from a number of our key leaders the vision of where we're going as a community. This will also include the fact that we'll be sharing some details of the starting of our second gathering. Now, we're not going to do two gatherings on Sunday. As a matter of fact, we're keeping Sunday as it is, but we're going to go to a Saturday night. And uh, it'll be beginning October 15th after Thanksgiving at uh, 535 up in the Youth Center. And uh, if you want to be a part of this, uh, we have uh, what we call a launch team meeting on uh, Sunday, October 2nd, following this gathering. And, and uh, the person I, people that I'd ask you to talk to would be uh, Josh and Jordan McClellan. Uh, you can email the office. You can say, I'm interested in being involved and getting involved in a Saturday night. Uh, and uh, we will get it up and running. I was also away um, for a few weeks this summer, obviously, and our travels took us to Russia, where we do a lot of missions work. I was just off... Uh, um, Skype with Alexander Prashaga, who's the pastor that we work with, and his wife. And actually, he got rushed to the hospital this week with his back is in such bad condition that something happened to his discs. I believe they ruptured because the translation is a bit of an issue. And he's in, uh, in the hospital as we speak. He's getting surgery this week. And... Uh, uh, we want to be able to uh, still continue our relationships, but I want you to keep him and his wife, Elena, in prayer right now. In a nutshell, there's three projects uh, that we can help the church in Russia. Uh, we already have $10,000 donated to go overseas to work with Russia. Um, but here's an interesting aspect. For every dollar over and above those $10,000, it will be matched up to $50,000. So for the next little while, we are going to make a push of missions to Russia, and that will give us the opportunity to raise $110,000. You with me? So we already got 10. We're looking to raise another 50, because if we, for every dollar we raise after that 10, we're getting it, we're getting it doubled. So I'm putting that in your hearts. I'm putting that in your ears. Uh, if you want to give to Russia and you want to start even giving in little increments now, just put Russia missions on, on an envelope, put it in the joy basket, and we'll go from there. But I'll elaborate a little bit more on that next week. 
Because over the past few months, obviously, we've been dealing with the series of Help My Family Needs Healing. And as usual, we've been encouraging you to go to prayer to write down your prayers so that we can partner with you. Uh, Rob Nash was here last week. If you were able to be a part of that, it was just a, a, an incredible time. Uh, six suicide notes were tuned, turned in uh, last Sunday. Uh, numerous razor blades, numerous discussions and people being prayed for and prayed with. And, and things were happening. Rob's just sort of been keeping me on track of what, what's been going on, where he's been and what he's been doing. And, and it's, it's interesting what's, what's happened just out of uh, even our time together last Sunday. God is doing something in people's lives, and he's using numerous people in numerous different ways to do that. And this is where we find ourselves. And we, every Sunday, again, you know that you can come to Seoul, and we'll be able to pray with you. And as we change our emphasis in the coming weeks, uh, and we conclude with this series, I, I want to leave you with something, and I want, you to leave, want to leave you with don't give up praying. Don't quit. Because so many times, I think that's what we want to do. We want to quit. There are a couple of parables in the scriptures and a story in Luke chapter 18 that I want us to look at. And I think that it would be helpful to all of us if we just take a moment in time. So if you have your Bible in the New Testament, book of Luke, Luke 18, that's where we're going to stay. Now, Dr. Luke, who's the author, he records many different parables of Jesus's. And, and, and parables are methods that Jesus used uh, that he utilized in his teaching and his teaching style. They weren't actual events and, uh, that w had taken place or had been witnesses. They're, they're, they're parables. Uh, they're stories. They're uh, analogies. They're metaphors. They're uh, the, ways of drawing a visual picture of a truth that, that he wanted to communicate. And, and some of them can be very difficult to understand when we read through the parables. And, and uh, you know, there were times where the disciples had to say, uh, Jesus, that, that parable you taught earlier today, what, you know, what in the world were you talking about? Because they didn't get it. And then there were the other times where Jesus made it very clear what the purpose of the parable was and what it meant. And everybody, it rang crystal clear. And so we read now in... Um, uh, 18 verse 1 it says this then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up how fitting very clear and he said in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought and there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea grant me justice against my adversary for some time he refused, but finally he said to enough, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see she gets justice so that she won't eventually come back and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, on the, the parable scale to clear to confusing, this one, you know, falls pretty close on the clear side. And now, I could really go into this, we can tear it take it apart, but I'm not going to do that this morning. Earlier in the book of Luke, the Pharisees have already decided that Jesus is not their Messiah. They don't like him. Uh, they have begun on various occasions to try to renounce him, to discredit him publicly. Their opposition in Luke begins to progress, and they question him, and they grumble. They outright scoffs. And so this is like from ver uh, chapter 11 all the way through chapter 16. And, and the interesting thing is that Jesus doesn't allow this group of individuals to intimidate him 
And as a matter of fact, as you read through the book of Luke, he's already done a whole lot of scorching words towards these guys. And uh, he directly renounces their pride. He directly goes after their hypocrisy. And he calls them out. But in addition, he speaks numerous parables in which he puts the Pharisees in a bad light. So in, in 18, we continue to read. It says this. To some who are confident of their own righteousness, then they look down on everybody else. So obviously the Pharisees are there and they're pretty self-conscious about who they are and how great they are and how they look down on everybody else. And Jesus told this parable. Two men go up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, like robbers, like evildoers, like adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so in this little, these two little parables, Jesus is teaching his disciples two things. And the first one is his perseverance in prayer. The second one is, you have that perseverance, but the second one is Jesus taught the attitude in which is a prerequisite for prayer. And that's humility. Now, first we have this check that just won't quit. That's what we have in this first passage, these first eight verses. And Jesus goes on and he paints this picture of this judge that, that according to verse 6, the guy's obviously corrupt. He doesn't care what anybody thinks. He doesn't care about God. doesn't care about anything else. And then we have this widow, and we're not sure if she's young or if she's old. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the, you know, again, the widow uh, in those days were almost entirely dependent on the surrounding society for their survival. They had no family to help look after them. And so here this widow was in need. And we know she has an adversary. We know that she has this person that's against her. And uh, the word describes an opponent. Now, obviously, something that we see in a lawsuit. And so it's very possible that Jesus is describing somebody that has probably sued the widow to take everything that she had left. And so now this woman is in a very desperate situation financially. And she feels like she's getting ripped off. And she probably is. And apparently, you know, since the judge speaks of avenging her, which is in the parable... This widow obviously was done wrong by her adversary. So ironically enough, in the face of injustice, she has to find herself pleading with an unjust judge. Pleading with an unjust judge. The judge couldn't care less about this woman. He makes it pretty clear he has no fear that he doesn't want to be nagged. And his motives are obviously his own selfish motives. I don't want to deal with her, but she's going to wear me out. So rather than have to constantly deal with this, I'm going to give her what she wants. Interesting statement. Now this is where the parable gets a little bit interesting. Verse 7, it gives us the answer as it's, it's God's own, his children. And, 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 and that's who we are here. Um... You and me, we are the widow. 
We are the ones, or we should be the ones, who are constantly pursuing the judge and and constantly crying out to him day and night, constantly pleading our case in hopes of receiving relief from our adversary. But we got to be careful that when we read this, that we don't look at this dishonest judge and compare him to God, because that's not what Jesus is teaching here. You know, who is this judge? Well, the parable is, is a bit different in that God is not the judge. Rather, the judge is used to provide a contrast to how rich God really is. How rich in his goodness he really is. If this non-God-fearing, non-respecter of individuals, this unjudge, uh, unjust judge will answer the cry of this persistent, desperate widow, then how do you think God's going to respond? And that's the point that Jesus is trying to make here. And so Jesus is saying here, here's a parable. It's about praying. It's about not losing heart. It's about not giving up. Even when the circumstances are always against you, this widow is desperate. She seeks out this terrible judge and, and annoys him until justice is served. Brad, I'm about to cough. <coughs> Sorry. And if this no good corrupt politician will do that, how do you think your heavenly father will respond to you when you faithfully, when you persistently, when you desperately call out to him? And then comes the kicker of the teaching. And we can't really miss verse 8. It seems a little bit weird when we're reading it, but... It's a direct connection that Jesus seems to make. He speaks of this desperation. He speaks of this persistence, this crying out to God day and night in prayer, and he immediately links it to whether or not he's going to find faith on earth when he returns. When Jesus comes back, is there going to be faith on earth? And I believe Jesus is sort of saying something like this is my own paraphrase, you know, you can count on the fact that I'm going to return and that I'll bring about justice on earth and when I come and and the issue for you to concern yourself isn't whether I will, you know, fulfill my promises, but whether or not you're going to be found faithful when I return. So are we faithful when we're constantly going to God, when we're writing out our, our requests, when we're presenting our requests, when we're praying for ourselves, when we're praying for our loved ones, when we're praying for our families, when we're praying for our, our friends? Are we that persistent? And of all the things that finding faith on earth can be linked to, Jesus doesn't link it to going to weekly church gatherings. He doesn't link it to, you know, us putting on suits and ties or dresses before we go out to church. He doesn't link it to singing 16 verses of Just As I Am. I think some of you know what I'm talking about. He doesn't link it for us to memorize the Apostles' Creed or other doctrines. That doesn't make those things bad in any way, shape, or form. But in this particular message, in this particular place, Jesus makes this connection to a day when he will return seeking out the faithful and in looking for them wonders whether there'll still be people who are crying out day and night, persistent, desperate people seeking, crying out to God, praying continually. Because the fact of the matter is, for many, Christianity is just something that we identify ourselves with on a box that sometimes we tick off on a form. You know, oh, I need a religion to identify with. Okay, I'm a Christian. 
And for some, it's, it's, it's only something that's mental. It, it, it's far removed from the realities of everyday living. As a matter of fact, you know, for some, we, we have this dichotomy in our life, a split where, you know, at one point, you know, on Sundays at 9.59, I'm Christian till about noon. And then I become my real self. And God has become some abstraction to some, existing in, you know, this unseen, unfelt spiritual realm. I can't see him. I can't feel him, you know. And for some, Christianity is full of form. It's all the religion, all the stuff that we do, but it's devoid of any substance or power. And God never intended it to be that way. I think we need the power of desperation in our prayers. You know, we live in a high-speed culture. We want everything now, now. You know, you know, let me say that God's definition of speedy might not look the same as ours. You know, our, our speedy fits into a, I need this last week. You know, you ever do a, a takeout order and you phone in? Hey, when, you know, when would you like to pick it up? Well, actually, I like it yesterday. But, you know, if I have to wait any time, I'll do it now. And then we freak out if they're making you fresh food, right? What do you mean 20 minutes? Seriously? You can't have it quicker? And that's just our culture. Like our phones aren't fast enough. Our computers aren't fast enough. God doesn't work that way. You know, in fact, if you really want to challenge your theology of prayer, contemplate on whether or not God might actually incorporate delays into his overall plan for your life. You know, might it be that not only do delays happen as we grow more and more desperate for God, but those delays might actually be a part of God's plans for us. Max Lucado writes, he goes, I don't know. Uh, I only know that his timing is always right. Though you hear nothing, he's speaking. Though you see nothing, he's acting. I do know that delays don't represent reluctance on God's part. You know, we often assume if there's a delay, there's a reluctance. Well, if God hasn't acted yet, he must not want me to have this, or it must not be his will, or maybe God's not willing to step in and do something here. You know, sometimes we think, well, maybe God doesn't even care. You know, I've prayed and he doesn't even care. But so often, though, there is a delay, and usually that delay paves the way for the fact that there's the greater power of God is about to be revealed. And this jump from delay to reluctance often misses out on a truth that we talk about here at Soul Sanctuary, that that God desires to make you more like Christ and he will do what is necessary to bring about those changes in your life. That's an ouch. Oh God, I want to be more like you. Oh, you know, I just need to do that. Okay, so then we need to make some changes in your life. And divine delays may not represent, you know, divine reluctance because one of the things that God knows is that desperation produces change. You ever been desperate enough to change? You know, it's interesting. I got a fascination for sick reality TV shows. And my, my boys go, Dad, why do you watch those things? Why do you watch that one? The latest one has been My 600-Pound Life. What? 
You guys probably watch Housewives, Who, whatever. The desperation for change is interesting to watch people who are in those states. And then I look at my own self and my own pithy little struggles of trying to lose 10, 15, 20 pounds. Interesting. And make no mistake, though, as believers, we face desperate times, don't we? Our enemy is engaged in a full uh, assault against us. And I believe that Satan has a simple mission, and it's very clear. It's to destroy God's creation. I think that's one of the reasons why Rob Nash's presentation is so important. I was dumbfounded when he, when he uh, had that interview with the CBC and the guy, you know, said, uh, brought up the aspect of the spiritual and, and, and Rob said that these kids, these people, not just kids, these people are hearing voices in their head to tell them to kill themselves and, and, and those voices are very spiritual. And, and for me, my theology, my worldview tells me that, that, you know, that's the assault of Satan on God's creation seeking to destroy whomever. And it's ironic how desperate we see the battles and, you know, we'll turn on the TV and you see what's going on in the Middle East and you see global terrorism and yet we're obviously sometimes oblivious to the desperate battles that's even just being uh, waged in our, our lives, our own lives today. And when we wake up to the battle that we're in, we'll, we'll reach points of desperation that results in changes. What's your battle? You know, let's just, let's just be honest. When we pull these things off the cross and we get to pray for them and we read them out in staff meeting, you know, porn and sexuality and sexual addiction is a battle in our community. Other types of addiction are battles. Relationships are battles. Unforgiveness are battles. Where's your desperation in going to the cross for help? You know, Bill Hybels, pastor of Willow Creek Church, tells an interesting experience after a baptism gathering in their church. And, and he writes, he says, I bumped into a woman in the stairwell who was crying. He goes, I thought it was a little bit odd. Since the service was so joyful, I asked her if she was all right. She said, no, I'm struggling, she said. She goes on and she tells him, my mom was baptized today. I prayed for her every day for almost 20 years. And the reason I'm crying is because I came this close to giving up on her. At the five-year mark, I said, who needs this? God isn't listening. At the 10-year mark, I said, why am I wasting my breath? At the 15-year mark, I said, this is absurd. At the 19-year mark, I said, I'm just a fool, but I just kept trying, kept praying. Even with weak faith, I kept praying. Then she gave her life to Christ. She was baptized today, and I will never doubt the power of prayer again. Sometimes when we pray and pray and pray and we feel like we're experiencing the law of diminished returns, right? You know, we stop praying because we're not seeing any actions. We don't see God moving in. We don't see these great, wonderful miracles. How come everybody else is talking about miracles? I'm not seeing anything. And so we get discouraged and we stop believing that God cares and that he will act. And I think it's that when we're at this point of desperations when our prayers might truly begin to succeed. 
sorry. What prayers have you given up on? What prayers have you given up on? That's a hard question, eh? Maybe it was the five-year mark. Maybe it was the ten-year mark. Maybe even longer. But you, you, you finally just, I've given up. You quit. Oh, Jerry, life is hard. Yeah, yeah, it is. Welcome, welcome to it. We're all part of it. But you got to think about this. If we, the body of Christ, walk around defeated, so are those who we are trying to influence into the kingdom of God. And so I, I ask the question, have, have we quit praying? Have, have we given up? Here's another one. Where are you so desperate for God's touch? In what area of your lives are you so desperate to see God move? Is it in maybe your finances? Now, again, I'm not a prosperity teacher, but I do believe that God moves in every aspect of our life. And maybe you need some action in your finances. Is it your physical health? I do believe in miracles. I do believe that God steps out of the, uh, from his, his area, his dimension, and steps, steps into our earthly uh, natural order and messes things up for his good and his glory. Maybe it's your marriage. I can't tell you how many times we've had on those cross your, our marriage. I have some good friends, John and Helen Burns. They're going to be coming in January. We're going to be doing a whole marriage weekend with them. Relationship weekend. There's a need here for people. Have you given up on your marriage? What about other relationships? Maybe you, you're struggling with addictions and, and there's so many, there's too many to, to name. But where are you desperate for God's touch? And there's some of you right now, you're screaming, your head's screaming so loud that I need God to touch me. And then you know exactly where. And for others, who are you praying for? Who's on your list? You know, do you even have one? How's that? Or, or, or is your prayer life all about you? Who, who are you willing to be desperate for? And to cry out to God day and night that, that they'll be saved, that they'll be healed, that they'll be touched, that they'll be moved to forgiveness or to be forgiven. Maybe it was 10, 15, 50 years it's going to take. But we're not done. Because there's another parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, and again, they, both these parables, the first and the second one, they, they, they share the common theme of prayer, and, but, their differences, but there are differences in the two. In the, the first section, the disciples are addressed with this, don't quit, don't give up, I'm talking to you guys. And then the second one, Jesus starts calling out the self-righteous. He starts talking to all the guys who are sitting around the outside, listening to the conversation, the Pharisees. 
and he begins to paint a verbal picture of two individuals and, and he's teaching them a le- like he's teaching this lesson by way of contrast and, and both men come to the temple to pray that first man is a Pharisee and all the self-righteous in the house say yeah that's our guy that's him that's us that's who we are and one of the problems with the Pharisees is that they were hypocritical and lying we are And their hypocrisy was rooted in a desire to actually just please other people and not so much God. And the the, the resulted in an emphasis on appearances rather than the attitudes of the heart. And so here Jesus is addressing those who were trusting in themselves. They were trusting in who they were, not, not who they are, not in God. And those who were trusting in their own righteousness, they weren't trusting in God's mercy and grace. They, you know, they were actually looking down on others. And this is all wrapped up in one character, the Pharisee. And the other man is a tax collector. Hated by everybody. Still to this day. And by all outward appearances in accordance to the value systems of all the Pharisees, there's no question as to who the righteous person was, right? And who was a sinner. The Pharisees are righteous. Everybody knows the tax collector is a sinner. And there's no doubt who's going to enter the kingdom of God. It's not going to be that tax collector. It's going to be the Pharisee. Because look at him. Not only is he dressed nice, got a great little hoodie and everything else that goes with it. You know, he does all the right things. Jesus has a surprise for his audience. And he goes on at the Paris, uh, parable. And remember, you got these guys on the outside listening to, his, to him teach. And he begins with this description of the prayer of the Pharisee. And the Pharisee comes to the temple and he stands in prayer. Why? Because that was their custom. They would stand to pray. So did the tax guy. And the Pharisee stood some distance from the tax man because uh, we know this from other contexts that where it's written in the scriptures. And I, I would suspect that the Pharisee, knowing his character, he would probably have found a very prominent place where everybody could see him. While well, the tax guy, he, he found a place out of the public eye. The Pharisee wanted to be seen. He wanted to be approved by men. Oh, look, at he's such a good Pharisee. Look at him pray. Oh, look at the way he looks. Awesome. But this tax guy, he didn't. He didn't even dare look upwards towards heaven. And remember, this is a parable. Jesus is just doing a teaching moment. And, and, and the words attributed to this Pharisee is not, as I understand from the text, the, the words which he spoke, but rather those which he, you know, he was thinking to himself. You know, because Jesus is able to strip away by revealing what the Pharisee was really thinking as he appeared to be praying. And this guy was fairly shrewd, you know, he, was, he knew what to say, he knew, you know, what he was thinking. His words were, you know, not too pious sounding enough. But he wished to be very pious. He wanted people to see that he was godly. Because it was all about the outward. And the attitude of the Pharisee was about self-trust. It was about self-righteousness. It was about a contempt for other people. The standard by which the Pharisees judge righteousness and unrighteousness, it was all on the external, focusing only on the outward deeds. It it never focused on their heart. It never was focusing in here. It was very selective lists of sins which the Pharisees listed, just as they had righteous deeds. These are the good things that we should be doing. That was very selective. And so it's no surprise that this man chose to major on what he thought to be his strengths because I'm a really good guy and I'm going to minimize and ignore my sins before God as I go and I pray in the temple. 
And the Pharisee judges himself in those terms of, of the, you know, those sins which society finds unacceptable rather than terms of what offends God. You know, put it differently, the Pharisee saw it in light of crimes more than terms of sins. You know, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, tax collectors, they're all looked upon as crooks in that time. And once again, you know, human standards are in view. He's looking through his own human eyes. The things which the Pharisee looks down upon as sin are those things which society shuns and considers unacceptable. And we still do that today with people around us. And so the Pharisee approaches God seemingly without regard of God's holiness or even without regard of sense of his own unholiness. And he almost expects God to be grateful for his presence and his prayers. And Pharisee, Pharisee thanks God for, for nothing other than, you know, he was in and of himself. There's no mention of God's graciousness. There's no realization of having been blessed by God, giving thanks to God for everything that has been, he's acquired. All, the, all that the Pharisee thanked God for is that he achieved in himself. He didn't ask God for anything because he did not believe that he lacked anything. And he was self-sufficient. He trusted in himself. He found himself sufficient. And so he asks nothing of God. The tax collector is totally opposite. This guy seemed to have got in, avoiding public notice, you know, getting in under the radar. And for the tax collector, his only audience in his mind is God. I know he's messed up. He knows he's a sinner. He knows as he stands in the presence of a holy God where he is. And, you know, the beauty of this thing is that he's genuinely repentant. He's one of the blessed who presently mourns, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. And he, he offers nothing to God. And the only thing he offers really is his repentance. He asks God for mercy and he asks God for the forgiveness of his sins and, he, and, and he's not aware of the Pharisee who's present or anybody else who's probably present in the temple. He's making no comparisons between himself and others. He only sees himself in the holiness of God and those in, in, in whose presence he stands. And he sees his own personal sin as something so great that he refers to himself as a sinner. And here, indeed, is humility and honesty and genuine repentance. And then Jesus closes the parable with the fact that the taxman will go home justified because he has come to God as a sinner on the basis of God's character. He's come to God on the basis of God's character of grace and mercy. God, I just need, I need you. You know, that, that, that's the beauty, that's the easiness of approaching a holy God and just asking him to, to forgive us and asking him for grace and mercy and asking him for strength and asking, hey, help God, help my family, we need healing. God, I need forgiveness to move on. But according to Jesus, no man is too sinful to be saved, but only too righteous. And the Pharisee not only does not want God's grace, he actually disdains God's grace. 
And the reason in, in his mind is that he doesn't need God's grace because he does everything right. He, you know, he's got the church down. And his righteousness is more than enough. Somebody once said that God can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. How desperate are we to see God show up in our lives? There are two fundamental elements which are to be found in our prayers. And the first, according to that first parable, is that persistence. That persistence upon the character of, of who God is. And the second, according to the second parable, is our repentance, our humility, based upon our character, or should I say lack of it. But it should be our humility. Not only should we be persistent in our prayers, but we need to be humble when we come before God. And the two passages on prayer go together, I believe, because there has to be a balance in the way in which we approach God. On one hand, we can pray with persistence for the kind, you know, and, and in many different ways, and the establishment of justice on earth, knowing the character of God assures us that he'll come, you know, that he does hear, that he does answer our prayer, and he'll bring about justice. But do we have the attitude of humility? We ha can't lose sight that when we come before God in prayer, that we also have to come with an awareness of our own fallen character. You know, when I say, you know, uh, good morning, saints, good morning, sinners, my wife hates it. Stop saying that. I love it. <laughs> and the reason I love it, because any given Sunday, you can identify in one of the two camps. Now, I, I am a sinner saved by grace. And I, when I read scriptures and I see it talks to the saints, I, I can identify with that. But then there is also these dark sides of me. Do any of you know of those dark sides of which I speak? And I'm not talking hockey. But we all have these dark sides. And sometimes salvation seems so far away, right? So we got to come to the Lord with a humility. You know, when we pray for justice, we pray for mercy. You know, we're totally unworthy of anything but divine wrath. <laughs> but yet we have a God who's full of grace and full of mercy. And he's just asking us to be faithful. So let me ask you, have you quit praying? Have you given up? What prayers have you given up on? Where are you desperate for God's touch? In what area of your life, in your finances, again, your physical health, your marriage, your relationships, your where are you desperate for God's touch? Who are you praying for? Who's on your list? You know, Luke 18 ends with a, not a parable, but with a story. And uh, Jesus is approaching Jericho, and this is how it ends. It goes, and Jesus approached Jericho, and a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked, uh, what's happening? They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So he calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now those who led the way rebuked him. In other words, told him to shut up. 
They told him to be quiet. So what does he do? He shouts all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. I love that echo. That's good. I practice that during the week. And Jesus stops and orders the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He goes, Lord, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Now we know from Mark chapter 10 that this blind man, he has a name. His actually his name is Bartimaeus. It means the son of Timaeus. Not that you really care, but that's where we get his name. And I believe that Bart can teach us a great deal of how we can relate to God. See, Bart's not only blind, he's also a beggar. And most blind people today lead productive lives. We've got the CNIB and we can see that happening and they can get around and, and it's, it's productive. But in Jesus' time, blind people couldn't work. So blindness was a terrible handicap. And every day, Bart sat beside the road, holding out his hand, asking for money. And it was interesting, beggars exist today in every city around the world. And, and even here, we see them at our intersections, right? They're holding signs. We'll work for food. I'm sure you've seen that. But some have gotten rather creative. And some actual signs I have seen is, why lie? I need beer. That's another one. Uh, we'll work for 40K. Take my <laughs> resume. I thought that was interesting. Uh, uh, tell me off. Uh, $1. I've seen that one. But the most disturbing one, I saw this at the Forks, was help me hire a hitman to kill my husband. Funny. Uh -huh. So in Jesus' time, beggars are at the bottom of the social ladder. And, and to it, that... that Add to that, Bart is not just a beggar, but he's blind. And uh, as with many blind people, he probably had a very keen sense of hearing. And one day he could tell from the sounds of the crowd that something unusual is ha asking, happening. So he begins to ask what's going on over the mumble of the mob. And he hears, well, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And no doubt Bart, uh, part, Bart has heard of the story of Jesus. And perhaps you heard how Jesus healed people, even restored sight to other blind people. It's quite possible. And even though Bart couldn't see Jesus based on what he had heard in that moment, he believed. And he didn't just believe Jesus was in the city. He believed Jesus had the power to change his life. And so verse 38, it says that, you know, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And that term, son of David, is interesting. It was the title of divine power. So Bart is already confessing that Jesus was more than just a teacher and a cool guy, that he was the king, that he was the Messiah. <coughs> and so Bart's really trying hard to get Jesus' attention because it's not working. And he's calling out to Jesus and, and, and the people surrounding him aren't saying, you know, good for you, Bart, cheer on. Yeah, Jesus can help you call louder. Instead, they're telling him to shut up. And these are the people who are leading the town. They're, they're irritated by this guy yelling, Jesus! And they're irritated. Shut up, shut up. You're an interruption. You're a disturbance. And here he is. He's calling out and he's being a nuisance. And it, Jesus is telling this, like Luke is telling this story. And when they tell the guy to shut up, he turns it up a notch or two or three. And he shouts all the more. 
And there's something in the original language we miss, actually, in the English language, because it's beautiful. In, in, in verse 38, when Bart first called out, Luke uses the word ba'au, which, which, which means to call out in a loud voice. But every, everyone told him, so when he was calling out in a loud voice, Jesus... Bart turned it up the volume, verse 39, that, that word that's translated that we have shouted all the more, it's crazo, which literally means to scream. Jesus! Isn't that annoying? Can you imagine that going on, especially in Canadian culture? This guy yells so loudly that Jesus hears his shout, orders him to be brought to him. At this point, Jesus is a man on a mission. We've got to figure out where he's going here. He's headed to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the world. In the next few days, he's going to face betrayal. He's going to face arrest, torture, crucifixion. And yet he pauses. This is the beauty of it. He pauses to answer the cry of one blind beggar. Now, there's got to be hundreds of other voices that are in this crowd calling out to Jesus. There has to be. But he was able to distinguish Bart's cry for mercy above the roar of the crowd. And so Bart has this faith. And faith is the first step that we have to take to receive mercy from God. Faith is not just believing God exists. It's acting on that belief. It's staking your entire eternity on the offer that God has extended for you to have a personal relationship with him. You know, like Bart, none of us have ever seen Jesus with our physical eyes. I've heard about Jesus and I believe in him, but faith is not just believing facts about Jesus. It's trusting him with your life. And I don't just believe that he was born in Bethlehem and died on a cross 33 years later. I believe he's changed my life and I'm still a work in progress. And I don't just believe in the fact of the resurrection. I believe that Jesus is alive and living in me and in others and one day we'll be returning back to this world. And like Bart, we are blind until we come to Jesus. And there's always someone who wants to keep you blind to the truth about God. And the Bible calls him the God of the sage, which is another title for the devil. You know, Satan wants to keep us from seeing the truth about Jesus, and it's not easy to believe without seeing, but that's what faith is. And perhaps you're like millions of other people who would believe if they can just have some reliable proof. And how many times have, have we heard it or even said it, I'll believe it and I see it, right? Okay, well, all you skeptics, I'm going to give you visual proof today that God exists. You ready? Hold on. I have to get in the zone. I have to pray. Hang on. Here we go. Visual proof, God exists. Everybody look up. Because this is where it's going to happen. God, I want everyone to see with their eyes that you are real. So right now, lift the roof off this building, twirl it around three times, and then gently place it back on the top of the building as if it never moved. Okay, God, please do it now. Do you see it? Okay, imagine for a moment that God did something like that. As ridiculous as it sounds. I'd love to think that actually everybody in this room would believe it. 
The word would spread like wildfire through the city. Can you imagine how many people would be crowded into this building next Sunday? Like, you know, talk about a parking problem like we would have in that. But to believe in God because you saw something like that is not faith. It is simply sight. The Bible says we walk by faith, not by sight. By faith, Bart calls out to Jesus for help. Even though we've never seen him, when we hear and believe, we call out for mercy as well. And so we have to take a step back and, and look at this chapter, but look at this story and ask ourselves, what can we draw from this story? And when we find that when we are bold enough to cry out to Jesus, to even stand in a gathering for prayer, listen, look at this story. Not everybody's going to be excited for you. In fact, there will be some people who will try to discourage you. And when you start getting serious about seeking out who Jesus is, and when you, know, you begin to call out your voice in the crowd, there will be a voice that will try to silence you. See, our culture, it wants to mold us into being a clone of everybody else, right? We wear the right labels, we listen to the right music, we speak the right language that everybody uses. It's okay to be a little bit spiritual, but don't become too flaky, and please don't be a radical follower of Jesus Christ. Because then you don't fit in with culture anymore, and they will ridicule you, they'll call you weird, they'll call you a religious fanatic. And I think that was interesting, even last week, when Nash said, you know, when we did this event that was held at a, a religious organization type thing, all these other places shut us down, because all of a sudden they're associated with Jesus. Listen, when you and I seek diligently to follow Jesus, we will face opposition. We will face criticism. And sometimes those who oppose your spiritual progress are going to be members of your own family. They, they may even be people claiming to be Christians. And when these people try to hinder you or slow you down, do what Bart did. Resist them. Don't give up. Don't let them intimidate you into silence. Jesus is still listening for that one voice amongst the murmur of the crowd. And when you call out to him, he will stop and he will respond to you. And you may think that in the larger scheme of the entire universe, you aren't very important. In comparison to the enormous you know, universe, our planet is just a small rock circling you know, a minor star. You and I are just one of billions sharing this rock. And in spite of this, and when we read the scriptures, you and I, you, you are a masterpiece. You were known by him. You are important to God. And when you call out to him, the beauty of scripture is that he pauses to help us. The awesome God who keeps the entire universe running will stop and answer your cry for help as if he has nothing else to do. And that's the truth of scripture. And God isn't distracted by the millions of other voices that are coming at him because he has time for you. And on the way to the cross, here's Jesus and he pauses. Why? To help Bart. And whatever else he's doing in the universe today, I am of the mind that he will pause and help you. The Bible says that God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. 
And Jesus always meets us at our point of desperation. But it's not desperation alone because you can be desperate and never call on God for help. You know, people all around you at work, at school, perhaps in your family may hinder you from crying out to God, but keep shouting even louder. Be like Bart. Be determined. At first, you know, I was surprised by the question that Jesus asked Bart. He says, what do you know, what do you want me to do for you? You know, at first, again, when I read this, my natural mind kicks in. What a stupid question, Jesus. Like, seriously. You know, what do you want me to do for you? He knows he's Bart's blind. Can't you tell? You know, Jesus asked a similar question to the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And, you know, do you want to get well? You know, well, had Bart been so accustomed to sitting beside the road accepting handouts? You know, after all, some people liked the attention they got from their own personal self. And they milked it. They made it work. Oh, that sounds so cruel, Jerry. Yeah, but it's true. It's human nature, and human nature is so twisted. You know, beggars can't be choosers. I've heard that all the time, but it's interesting. Jesus gives Bart a choice. You know, he asks him the question because really he wants Bart to admit his point of need. He wants Bart to confess he believed Jesus could change his life. And after all, when Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Bart could say, hey, can you give me the name of a good eye doctor? You know, if he really didn't believe Jesus could have healed him, he could have said something like, well, bless me, Lord. I just need a blessing and maybe a couple bucks. But in that one short sentence, Bart expresses his need. He demonstrated his belief in the power of Jesus. And he cries out, he says, Lord, I want to see And the best prayers are simple, they're short, they're specific. And like that widow in that first parable, they're persistent. You know, Bart didn't sit there, Lord, I cometh to thee this warm afternoon, humbly beseeching you, thou wouldest thou comest and help me with my little problem here. It's not a big problem to you, Lord, it's just a little problem, but it's a big problem. You know, Jesus comes to you and I and he says, what do you want me to do? And we can't pray specifically until we're willing to admit our point of need. God can't help you until you're willing to admit that you're addicted. He can't help you until you're willing to admit that your marriage is in a mess and that you need help. Never mind your spouse. Well, they're crazy. Well, so are you. Now that we've leveled the playing field. Or Lord, I got a problem with anger or bitterness or I need to change. See, some believers are, some Christians are reluctant to ask God to heal them or to heal a loved one. They're afraid that if God doesn't deliver, they have, you know, injured God's reputation. You know, if you're sick, there's a big difference between playing, praying, Lord, bless me, and Lord, if I got cancer, I want to live. Don't ever be afraid to ask God to do something miraculous. You know, the, I think sometimes the crazy thing in our lives is that we expect God, you know, when we pray for miracles, we expect him to come out into the natural order from the supernatural and do something crazy. But sometimes God allows the natural order to accomplish miracles. And I look at this story and without touching him, 
Because in other healings in, in scripture, Jesus would touch the people, but without touching Bart, Bart receives his sight. Jesus says, I see, interesting, I see your faith. And that's enough. And Bart's eyes open up. And the first thing he sees is the face of Jesus. And then the last sentence in chapter 18 says that Bart follows Jesus. Now, we don't know much about this, but Jesus headed for Jerusalem and a cross. And I'll bet money that Bart followed Jesus there. And I wouldn't be surprised if we get to heaven and we find this Bartimaeus guy, that he was part of the 120 who were praying in an upper room on the day of Pentecost. I wouldn't be surprised. And here's a lesson. Because when you and I see the face of Jesus, you will follow him too. And you may be thinking, well, wait, wait, I thought faith is believing without seeing. And now you say, I need to see the face of Jesus. Well, make up your mind. Yeah, welcome to my mind. You can see him with your eyes of faith. When you cry out to Christ and trust him to change you, you will see him. You will experience him. His light will shine into the darkness of our hearts. And the Bible describes it this way. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I don't know what your problem is. I don't know what your need is. I don't know what your passion is. I don't know any of that, but you and I need the same thing. Bart asked for mercy even before he was healed. And Bart saw at least two important things. First, he saw his need. My question is, do you, do you see your need? You know, sometimes we address our needs, but we, would, we don't embrace it and, and acknowledge just how, fact, uh, how messed up we are. And then next, Bart saw this opportunity passing in front of him and bystanders told him, you know, Jesus is passing and here's the powerful example of how great opportunities pass in front of us. This guy had a split second decision. If he remained still, if he remained silent, his opportunity for healing would be gone. He had nothing to lose and perhaps he thought, you know, there's a crowd here today, maybe I'll catch Jesus next time. You know, next time he comes through Jericho, he had no idea what was going on. There was gonna be no next time. And the way I look at this and the way I look at the story and the way that I look and I see how God speaks to us through his word is that for some of us here today, we need to do business with Jesus, but you're hesitating. Oh, there's too many people here. You know, I don't want to go to celebrate recovery. I don't know. I don't know anybody there. You know, I'll do it when I'll get home. Bart didn't know that Jesus would never pass through Jericho again. Because he went straight from Jericho to Jerusalem to the cross. What makes you think there'll be a next time? Yeah, this week I got a... I don't often admit it, but I got a little rattled. My boy comes home and he's jumping all over the place. The adrenaline's kicked in and he just tells me what happens in his day and how his prof has a heart attack and him and another kid take their CPR that they learned and they help stabilize him until EMS show up. Proud, proud parents we are. Proud of all of our kids. So I go, well, how old is he? Thinking 70, 80, 90. <laughs> now he's 58. I go, he's young. My 
My kid may be six foot five, but I can still take him down. I'll tell you that right now. A moment of time. And that's it. The thoughts that ran through my mind when I watched, it was, it was slow motion. I'm watching the car move forward. I'm trying to pull this tire off and I'm seeing the jack do this and I'm looking at my hand in the wheel while going, I need a tourniquet. It wasn't off yet, but that was my thought. I'm going, opportunities go by so quickly and things happen to our lives so fast that change us. And Jesus was just passing through Jericho and that was his last time and Bart had no clue. And I think if anything, when we take a step back and we look at our lives, I look at this encounter with Bart and Jesus and it teaches us about the critical importance of about seizing an opportunity. Today you have the opportunity to cry out for mercy. And I guess that's the question, will you do it? And Josh, I'm going to ask you and your team to come up here. And for the rest of us, I just want us to take a moment in silence. And if anything, can we do something reflective? And for those of you who need to, I just want to encourage you to call out to Jesus today, this morning, and whatever it may be, and maybe it's just, God, have mercy on me. God, I need your forgiveness. God, help. My family needs healing. Maybe you've given up praying. Maybe you've just said, what's the point? Maybe you lost your desperation. You know, Fasting Fridays comes and my inboxes start lighting up. I can see where people are desperate in certain areas. Maybe you lost your desperation. Maybe you've just sort of given up. Where are you desperate for God's touch? God, my prayer is that our desperation would rise to the surface within ourselves, that we would step aside our pride and embrace the humility of the tax collector. God, there are things in each and everybody's lives here today that for some of us, we're constantly bringing them to you, and for others, we've sort of grown tired and wearied and we wondered what's the point for some of us, we don't even know who you are. We hear this guy pontificate off a stage and maybe we just need to experience Jesus in a personal way and 
My prayer today is that you would begin to reveal yourself to each and every one sitting in this room. God, that you would light the passion and spark back in our lives. That we would call out like Bartimaeus for mercy, that we wouldn't allow the voices around us to, to beat us down. And God, that we would be persistent like the widow. Embraced by the humility of the tax collector. So speak to us, I pray. What song do you have on your head? Okay, play it. I'm going to ask you just to stand. We're going to end this way this morning. I'm going to ask our prayer team to go to the crosses. We're going to end on this song. It's going to be a time of prayer. Our prayer team are at the cross for you. If you want more prayer again, we can never get enough. Maybe you have already been at, after communion and you're going back. It's all good for you. Maybe you just need to be rekindled. Maybe you just want to leave a request. That's totally cool too. Well, let's just take a moment as collectively and let's sing this song along with Josh times the one extending the blessings put out his hands those receiving the blessings did likewise if you want a blessing before you go here it is if you still want to stay and pray if you want to move if you want to talk about Jesus come talk to us at the welcome center come talk to me book an appointment with us we'll talk to you about Jesus if you don't know what we're talking about it doesn't resonate but there's something in your heart that's going on we want to be there to help guide and direct you the best we can so Soul Sanctuary, may God give you the determination as that chick that just would not quit. May he give you the humility, the penitence, the prayer life, and the grace that he gave the tax man. May he deliver you from the pride and self-righteousness of the Pharisee. Oh, and may he give you the determination of the faith of the blind, Bartimaeus. And may he bring about justice, mercy, and peace in your life as you go for his sake. Now go and make a difference in the world in which he has placed you. Be blessed. We'll see you next week. Crosses you wait for the crown. Tell the world of the treasure you found. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open.